Um, and why don't I pray, and then we'll get into that passage. So, Father, thank you so much um, for your word. And, Father, I pray that, um, that it would teach us something today, uh, that it would challenge us in some way today. And, Lord, that you would send us out to live uh, in light of what is in your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tomorrow, uh, I'm actually heading back to the UK for a few days, and I'll spend some time in my old city where we used to live there, Liverpool, and that always makes me think of the Beatles. Every time I, I think of it, it probably makes you think of it too, and so inevitably what I do and what I have been doing for the last couple of weeks is every time I'm in the car, I put on the Beatles, like Essentials radio station or whatever, and so I listen to the Beatles as I'm driving around, and one song keeps popping up uh, every time I listen to it, and that is... Uh, do you remember the song Imagine by John Lennon? Do you remember that song? Uh, it goes a little bit like this. I'm not singing it. <laughs> Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine there's no countries. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people live in life in peace. And he goes on, he says, Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. It's great lyrics. I mean, it's a really catchy song and it kind of sticks in your head and it's probably rolling through your head right now. And as I you know, hear that song, I, I just wonder, like, what is it that John Lennon is longing for? What is it he really is desiring in that song? And you don't have to think about it very long. You realize what he wants is, is human flourishing. Like, he wants to flourish, and of course, he wants the whole world to flourish. That's, that's um, what he's longing for. And he's particularly envisioning a world where there's no racism and no bigotry, where there's people from all ethnicities, all economic classes, all levels of education will, to, to use his words, where all of them will live as one. And that song, of course, it resonated with people in 1971 when he wrote it, and it still resonates today. It gets quoted or it gets played anytime there's a clash between races or nations or, or some kind of fight between the rich and the poor, we play that song. It's almost like a, our world's lament when things go bad. And I actually really want what he talks about in there, too. I want to live in a world of peace, a world with no conflicts, you know, a world where there's no war, no greed, no hunger. And it's actually that very kind of community that we're looking at today in Acts chapter 2. Only, interestingly, the Bible's way of getting at it is the exact opposite to how John Lennon said we should get to it. Because, did you catch that? Lennon imagines a world with no heaven and no hell below. A world with no religion. Which I think is ironic because he was actually a deeply religious man. And what I, I don't want to brush aside all of the, the horrible things uh, that have been done in history... Uh, in the name of Christianity, I don't want to brush those things aside, things like the Crusades, things like the Spanish Inquisition, things like American slavery. You know, all of these things happened by people using Christianity as their weapon to oppress and even to kill people. And I don't want to brush those things aside because those things are utterly horrible. However, had any of those horrible movements actually taken the time to really understand, to really try and apply what the Bible says about the dignity of all people about the value of all people, about the equality of all people. Had they actually taken the time to, to look at this chapter we're looking at today, Acts chapter 2, they would have seen that there is absolutely no way that a person could use the name of Christ to justify any act, any thought, any word that demeans, that debases, that dehumanizes any person from any ethnicity or any background. 
Because what we see in today's passage is actually a unity of people from every nation under heaven, every race, every tongue, every economic class, coming together and being of one mind. Put that another way, what John Lennon imagines is actually fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And therefore, it can be fulfilled in a Christian church today. And so the way we're going to see this fulfilled in the church today is by breaking down this passage in three ways. So we're going to look first at the extraordinary. There, there are continuing to be some extraordinary things happening in these passages we're looking at. But then secondly, out of the extraordinary, there begins to be this pattern of ordinary that starts to emerge. And then finally, it actually leads to an orientation of Christians looking out and non-Christians looking in. So we have the extraordinary, the ordinary, and the orientation. So let's look at the extraordinary. Now, a lot of what we're talking about in the book of Acts over this series, we're talking about flourishing and spreading, uh, and that's kind of the theme that runs through this whole thing. And a lot of what we've talked about so far are one-time events. They're not the norm. Uh, They're not repeatable. And we actually get ourselves into trouble when we try and repeat them. Uh, A couple years ago, Emmy and I were just still getting settled into living in Los Angeles, and it was around the time, do you remember that weird time where it was like, we have COVID restrictions, we don't have COVID restrictions, and nobody knows what to do. We're in that, like, we're not sure what's happening phase in the world. And it was a Sunday night, I remember. We were at home. We had no food in the house. And I was like, well, I think we can kind of go out now. So let's, let's go somewhere. And so Emmy has this list of all the taco stands that she wanted to try. Not like restaurants, but like the ones on the side of the street under the tent. So she had a list of all these to go to. And so we picked Avenue 26 Tacos, which is over in Lincoln Heights. And so we pop in the GPS, and we drive over there. And I'm excited to try these tacos. And we get over to where it says... The taco stand is, and there's not one taco stand. There are dozens of them. And it's not just taco stands. There are games being played. There are people selling toys for children and clothes. There's a whole festival going on. And we're like, this is amazing. I can't believe they do this every Sunday night. And so we didn't just try Avenue 26 tacos. We tried like three or four. We're like, we'll get a taco there and a taco there, and we'll get one there. And we tried all the tacos, and it was great. It was just incredible experience. Now, fast forward a few months later, we have some friends visiting from out of town. We're like, you know what you have to do when you come to L.A. is get a street taco. So it's Sunday night. Let's go to the taco festival. So we get in the car, and we drive over there, and we get to where it is. And not only is there not a taco stand there, there's nothing there. It's like the, the street is empty. There, there are actual tumbleweeds in Los Angeles, and all of them were rolling through the street there. I mean, there's nothing happening there. And what we realized was... That special taco festival was a one-time thing. It it wasn't repeatable. I don't think they've ever done it again, not to my knowledge. And so there's no repeating that event. It was a one-time extraordinary experience. Now, that is what is continuing to happen here in Acts chapter 2. And so I want to look at the extraordinary parts of this. So there's kind of three extraordinary things that show up here. One is that it says they were together daily. Secondly, there was this selling and sharing of their possessions. And then thirdly, it says there were many wonders and signs. So these are the extraordinary things. So let's just take them in order. Um, And so let's just observe this. Look at the text again. Uh, They were together daily. Um, Look at verse 46. It says, every day they continued to meet together. So they met every day. And not only every day, but all the time. It says they met in the temple every day and that they went to one another's homes every day. And so they're meeting constantly, and they're doing it every single day. And you you hear that, and you think, well, my goodness. I mean, let's be honest. Getting to church once a week and getting there on time is hard enough. Meeting every day and doing it throughout the day, I mean, that's kind of crazy. And I have to admit that reading this and looking at it and saying this to you, it makes me think of uh, the old Saturday Night Live character that Dana Carvey used to do. 
called The Grumpy Old Man. Does anybody remember this character? Usually it was on Weekend Update, and so he'd come out and, uh, okay, I'm going to do an impression of Dana Carvey doing an impression of an old man for you, okay? So be kind to me. Uh, so he would come out on Weekend Update, and he'd start pounding on the desk, and you know he's dressed as an old man, and he's got the makeup on and the hair, and he'd start complaining about things and how the young people today take everything for granted. And one of my favorite bits is, uh, I'll never forget this one, he comes out and he's talking about Kleenex. And he goes, okay, here we go. <clears throat> In my day, there wasn't all this concern about hygiene. In my day, we didn't have Kleenex. When you, when you turned 17, you were given the family handkerchief. It hadn't been washed in generations, and it stood on its own. It was filled with diseases and swarming with flies. If you tried to blow your nose, you'd get an infection. And then he'd go, and that's the way it was, and we liked it. Life is a carnival. Thanks to some of you for laughing. Uh, now, that's just pity. That was just pity. Um, so the church was meeting together every day in the temple, and they went to people's houses, and that's the way it was, and they liked it. That was the point of that, by the way. And we'll see in a minute that they actually did like it. They did like coming together. And so they're meeting all the time. They're meeting every day. And this is, that is extraordinary. That is not repeatable, by the way. That's the extraordinary thing that's happening here. And so, um, so that's one of them. But the list gets more intense as we go on because, secondly, it says they were selling their possessions in order to share with those who were in need. So that's the second extraordinary thing. Look at verse 44. It says they were together and had everything in common and verse 45 says that they sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. And now this is extraordinary because, just think about this, this is going beyond opening up the bank account and giving the extra that's in there to somebody. This is saying there is no more extra in there, so the only way I can help support other people is to start selling things that belong to me. And so they started selling property, homes. They started selling their clothes. They would sell their livestock. Who knows what they were selling? And then they weren't benefiting personally from the sale but they were giving the proceeds away to someone else. Now, that's extraordinary. Now, thirdly then, the third extraordinary thing is there was many wonders and signs. Verse 43, everyone is filled with awe at these wonders and signs. And again, this is obviously part of the extraordinary. And in a couple of weeks, we'll actually look at one of these wonders performed. But it was, it was, it was so extraordinary that the whole city paid attention. This became, some, this became a big deal in the whole city. And so it says that everyone was amazed at these things. So these are the extraordinary, the meeting daily, the selling and the sharing, the many wonders and signs. But these are all things that are not prescriptive, meaning they're not something prescribed for us to do today. Now, it doesn't mean we can't do them. It doesn't mean that, that we can't do these things or that God wouldn't do them, but what it, it's not the normal pattern for the church going forward. The normal pattern explained in Scripture for how a person experiences the work of the Holy Spirit in their life is actually, it's not normally extraordinary. The pattern that we see is actually the Spirit works through the ordinary. And that's the pattern that emerges out of these verses in Acts chapter 2 that we do see repeated all throughout the book of Acts and on into the New Testament letters and even continually repeated in churches across the world, even in our church today. This pattern, we're actually literally doing all of it today, and we do it every week. Um, and that is the pattern that the Spirit usually works in to change our lives, to transform us. So now that leads us to point two, the ordinary. And there's three parts to this pattern. Uh, I heard someone once alliterate these three parts, and I couldn't think of a better way to do it. So if you hate the alliteration, 
Don't blame me. I'm just stealing it. Um, the pattern is this. There's learning, there's loving, and there's liturgy. And this is a pattern. And we see in the book of Acts, churches repeating this pattern. We, we see in the New Testament letters, churches repeating this. We see in church history as the church grows and develops, we see this pattern repeated. Uh, in a New Testament church and in a modern church, for it to be healthy, for it to flourish, for the church to be the kind that actually spreads out across the world, you'll always see these three things repeated in the church. There's learning, there's loving, and there's liturgy. Now, the idea of repeating a pattern, uh, because actually, you know, sometimes you kind of think, ah, oh, the same thing again. But actually, the idea of repeating a pattern, of doing the same things over and over, it's, it's actually, it's like you're accumulating something. It, it, you know, you're accumulating something over time, and the more you do it, the more you accumulate. Um, I, you know, I'm a kind of bibliophile book nerd, and so I like, I, you know, I, I've accumulated a library over the years. So if you come to my house, you can see all the books in the library that I've accumulated. And within that, I actually have several sets of books by particular authors, and some of them are sets I bought all at once. And so I have, sitting on the shelf, the complete set of Charles Spurgeon's sermons. Uh, it's 10 volumes, and I bought that whole thing at once. So I bought it all at once. It's a complete set. On the other hand, the shelf below, uh, I've now collected the entire New Testament commentary series by William Barclay. You're like, who? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who he is. I've got the whole set. That one is 16 volumes. And I bought those slowly over time. Uh, with every visit to a used bookstore, I'd go into the section where they might sell that sort of thing, and I'd look to see if they had one of the ones that I was missing. And sometimes I'd find one, and so I would buy it. And uh, over the course of at least 10, maybe 12 years, it's taken me uh, to, to complete the entire set. Uh, and I actually just bought the last two back in November, so it feels like a real accomplishment. You know, some people run marathons. I buy books. Um, the picture here is that that is what our spiritual growth is like, that we accumulate it slowly over time. And yes, of course, there are times where it's accelerated, like when I'd find a whole set of books by an author that I wanted. You sort of accelerate it when you buy the whole thing. And that's like the Holy Spirit moving in your life in an extraordinary way. But for the most part, spiritual growth happens slowly over time as we follow this ordinary pattern day by day by day by day. And so let's look at that pattern of learning, loving, and liturgy. Now, the first thing we see in here is learning. It says in verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then down in verse 46, it says, they met in the temple courts. And the implication here is that the temple courts, this is where the teaching is happening. And so let's think about that word devoted. What does it mean that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching? What does that mean? Well, the word, it's, it's the same word that Luke used back in chapter 1. Uh, you might remember this. He said that all the believers joined together constantly in prayer. Do you remember that from chapter 1? Uh, so in other words, what he's saying is they were devoted in prayer. And so uh, this is talking about consistency. It's talking about constancy. It's talking about obstinate persistence. It's, remember this, it's like Bart and Lisa asking Homer over and over and over again if they can go to Mount Splashmore. That's the picture here. So in other words, learning about Christ through biblical teaching and then applying that teaching to their lives, that was the constant. That was the thing they persisted in. Uh, it seems actually that it became their passion. So much so that they not only did it when they met in the temple courts, but they went to each other's homes and did more of that. And so that's the part of the pattern that is repeatable. They can be devoted. We can be devoted to, the, to biblical teaching. We can do that today. I mean, find a Christian who is flourishing, 
and you will find someone who is devoted to biblical teaching. So that's the first part of the pattern. The second part that's repeated throughout the New Testament and therefore repeatable by us today is the loving. Now, you won't find that word in there, but uh, the loving, you can see it where it says multiple times in there, uh, more than once it says they were together. And being together wasn't so much something they did, it was something that they were. It says they were together. Uh, Verse 42, it also says that word devoted is applied to that too. So they were devoted, it says, to fellowship. And fellowship, at its most simple definition, it means partnership. They were devoted to partnership with one another. They were devoted to to being together. And so, again, you have that consistent, that persistent partnership that they have with one another. Now, here's where we can see the world that John Lennon imagined begin to be realized. But notice it's not through the means that Lennon imagined. Look again at verse 44. It says, all the believers were together together and had everything in common. So let's take a step back and ask the question, well, who is Luke talking about? Who are these believers? Who are all the believers? Who is he talking about? Well, back up in verse 5, you get an indication of who the first Christians are and where they come from. And in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says that there are people from every nation under heaven. Now, again, that's probably a little bit of hyperbole, but the idea there is it's people from everywhere. It's just a whole mass of people from different places. And then Luke actually lists them out for us in verses 10 and 11. Uh, He says there's Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, people from Rome. There's Cretans, there's Arabs. And so these are people from everywhere. Now, remember what John Lennon was imagining? Remember what he said? He said he, he imagines a brotherhood of man. All the people sharing all the world. Remember he said no possessions, no countries, no, uh, nothing to kill or die for. All the people live in life in peace. He imagines a world that lives as one. And yet the way to get there, says Lennon, is, remember, no religion. No heaven or hell. But read Acts chapter 2, and what do we have here? What do we have? What does it say? We have people from every nation under heaven. People from every religious background. People from every economic background. Every race. Every stage of life. And what's the word there in verse 44 to describe them? Look at it again. What's the word there? It's together. It's living as one. It's fellowship. It's partnership. It's brotherhood. And it says they have everything in common. In fact, people, what did it say? Do you remember what it said? They were selling their possessions and giving to those who had need. No possessions, said Lenin. And so here you have people erasing all the borders of all the nations, no countries, like Lenin said. You have people not hating one another, but loving. Not hoarding, but giving. And what is exceptionally, exceptionally clear in verse 47, where it says that... Look at that, verse 47, it says they're praising God. And so these are, these are not people who are imagining no religion. These are not people who are saying no heaven or hell. These, these are not atheists. These are worshipers. And so in other words, the only way to get what Lenin imagined through, is through the Christian gospel. Because Peter just preached the Christian gospel. All of these people just became believers, and that is what unified them. That's the thing that unifies And so these are people who don't share a common race, they don't share a common language, they don't share a common country, 
But what they do have in common is that all of them, it says, have received the forgiveness of sins through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and then the giving of the Holy Spirit. That is what has unified them. That is what unifies us. And so together wasn't so much something they did. It was something that they were is who they became. Now, please get this. Because what Luke is talking about here is not something that is meant to fit under the category of extraordinary. You might read that and be like, yeah, that is extraordinary. But actually, this unity is the ordinary. It is the norm for the church. And so we see this multi-ethnic, multi-economic, multi-lingual representation of the church starting right here in Acts chapter 2. And you see it all the way through Revelation where it says over and over and over again that Jesus Christ died to save people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And in the very last paragraph of the very last chapter of the Bible, it says that the nations, the nations, it says, the nations will walk by the light of Christ for eternity. And so this picture of loving in the church is the norm. That is normal. Loving those who are unlike you, that is prescriptive. And that is repeated throughout the New Testament. Therefore, it is repeatable by us. That is the pattern. And so again, show me a person who is thriving and you will see, and show me a church that is thriving and you will see one who is not only devoted to the apostles' teaching learning, but you'll see somebody who is loving. And particularly loving people who are very unlike them. So that's the first two parts of the pattern. The third part, so you have the learning, the loving, and now the third part is the liturgy of the church. So loving, learning, and liturgy. And by liturgy, I don't mean necessarily the exact form of what is being done. But notice this comes up in verse 42 as well. Because notice really carefully, look really, really carefully at what it says. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the learning, to the fellowship, that's the loving. But then look at this very closely. Devoted also applies to this. Look really, really closely. It says, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So again, this is something they're devoted to. But notice the definite article, the word the. And every scholar who looks at this notices that article. It doesn't just say they were devoted to breaking of bread, which could just mean eating. And in fact, it does say breaking of bread down in verse 46, which probably does mean just eating. And so Luke wants us to notice this little tiny word. But to say the breaking of bread and prayers means he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about communion. And just to cut through all the stuff that's there, specifically what this means is He's saying they were doing corporate worship. Put that another way, they were devoted to gathering together for church services. That was part of what they were devoted to. That's the liturgy. And once again, this is not one of the extraordinary things that is happening. This is, this is the ordinary. And we know it's ordinary because it's repeated. In fact, we're going to see this in a passage really soon. And there are whole chapters in some of the New Testament letters that are about how to do corporate worship. And there are some verses like in Hebrews chapter 10 that say, they, they actually say it's a matter of blatant disobedience to God to give up corporate worship, to give up meeting together. And so again, show me a person and a church who gather together consistently for corporate worship and are devoted to biblical teaching and are devoted to loving one another. And I will show you a person in a church that is thriving, that is flourishing. 
This is the pattern. And so all three of those things happening in these verses in Acts chapter 2, and you see this pattern uh, begin to emerge out of all the New Testament letter, churches that are written about in the New Testament letters. And, and you see this emerging, and you see this pattern either because they're all doing it, and therefore those churches are flourishing, or they're not doing one or more of them, and the church is struggling, and that's why a lot of the letters are written. And so this is the pattern that emerges. Per people and churches who are devoted to learning biblical truth, loving one another, and corporate worship, that's the liturgy, uh, they're thriving. They're the ones that flourish. And these are the churches that God uses to then spread the gospel across the world. Now, by the way, there's not one of these three things, not one thing in this pattern that a person can do alone. It's not possible to do these three things without the local church. Learning, loving, and liturgy. The pattern of all of these is in the context of a local church. And I just want you to think about that for a minute. Is that you? Are you devoted to learning, to loving, to liturgy in the local church? And let's just get real for a second on how this works. Because... There may be some of you, in fact, there may be a lot of you who could say, genuinely, you could answer the question, yes, I am devoted to those three things. I'm devoted. I, I give time to that every week. I, but you still feel like you're not flourishing. You're like, I am devoted. Where's the flourishing part, Ken? Where's that? Uh, a lot of discouragement actually comes when we feel like we've stumbled or maybe taken a step backwards. But in actuality, that stumbling, that step backwards, that is what spiritual growth is always like. Spiritual growth, it's always paradoxical. Do you know what a paradox is? It's something that seems contradictory, but when you investigate, when you look into it, it's actually found to be true. And here's what I mean by this. Christian growth is always a paradox. It's always going backwards to go forwards. It's always going down to go up. It's always giving up in order to gain. It's always that way. We were talking about this in our Bible study on Wednesday night, and one of the guys uh, in the group who does concrete says, uh, he goes, yeah, this makes total sense. Because when you go to build a building, you always go down before you go up. You dig into the ground, you pour the concrete and you build the foundation, you put the pylons in, and then you build up. And that's exactly what Christian growth is like. You know, we, we use that image of a seed all the time, right? To grow a plant, what do you have to do? You go down first, you put it in the ground first, it grows roots down into the ground, and then it comes up. So it's always down to go up. It's always back to go forward. It's always giving up in order to gain. I mentioned this before, but when Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses in order to bring reform to the church in the 1500s, the church had become legalistic and it had, had lost the core of the gospel. In fact, the church was basically just building above the ground and not doing anything below the ground. And here's what, here's what Luther's first statement was to, to try and uh, reform the church. Here's what he said. And, and this statement and these 95 statements are still changing the world today. And here's the first statement, the first line. He says, the whole of the life of a Christian is repentance. That's it. The whole of the life of a Christian is repentance. And what is repentance? What is it? It's going back. You were going this way, now you're going that way. It's going down. It's giving up. Now, you know I love to do drawings, which, by the way, is a second Saturday Night Live reference for some of you. And they're usually not very good. But this is my representation of the Christian life, so we can go to that. Um, I told you, it's not very good. Um, but here at Christchurch, we, we talk about Christian growth as consistently, continually moving through four postures of, of renewal. 
And so there's up, down, up, and out. Like looking up, which is worship, looking down, which is confession and repentance, uh, being raised up through the goodness of the gospel, and then sent out. And we talk about that all the time, up, down, up, and out. And then we do it again and again and again and again and again. It's a pattern. And this drawing is meant to represent that in some way. This is what I think Luther means when he says the whole of the Christian life is repentance. And so this is me trying to illustrate it for you. So you'll see there's a little throne there. Uh, and you'll see, by the way, this just gets repeated, repeated over and over and over again. But you see that little throne there? That's the looking up. You have an encounter with God. You worshiped him. You see him on his throne like Isaiah did. You see him on his throne like John did. And you worship him. But that then causes you to recognize your own brokenness, your own sinfulness. And that's the going down. That's the repenting part. And so in the circle, we go down. But then we're raised up again through the good news of the gospel. And then the last arrow moving forward is we're sent out. But then notice it's, it's just the pattern repeats over and over and over again. And the thing that you'll find is the more that you mature as a Christian, the more you have to repent of. The more times you have an encounter with God, the more you realize, I've got to repent again. And so you go through this again. It's always this. Now, why does spiritual growth happen this way? Why is it always going down to go up? Why is it always back to go forward? Why is it always giving up in order to gain? Why is it always that way? It's because this is the very pattern of what Jesus Christ did when he came to earth. He went down to go up. He humbled himself, it says, by putting aside his glory for a while to become a man. He went down even further by not just being a man, but a poor man. He went down even further, not just being poor, but being an outcast, and even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. But it's his going down, his giving up. His, that means that we can go up. That means that we can gain. Because yes, he humbled himself all the way to the point of death, but God raised him up from the dead, and he exalted him to the highest place. And so you see, that's the pattern of Jesus to accomplish the forgiveness of sins, and so, of course, therefore, that would be the pattern of his followers to receive the forgiveness of sins. And so this is how spiritual growth happens. It's through the ordinary means of learning, loving, and liturgy. And in doing that regularly, we, we become the kind of people who learn that we have to go down in order to go up, back to go forward, to give up to, in order to gain. And when this spiritual growth begins to happen in a person's life, there becomes this new orientation. And that's point three, and this is going to be really, really brief. But I want us to see really briefly how the spreading of the church happens as a result of spiritual growth. Because when they, when they grow spiritually, there's this reorientation of their lives. Uh, when, you know, when they may have once been inwardly focused and thinking about themselves, thinking about their own needs and trying to exalt themselves as soon as they begin to grow spiritually, they become outward focused. Look at verse 47. It says, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now again, there's three things happening in this verse two, uh, and, I, and they're all connected. And notice the first, it says they're praising God. And we've talked about this almost every week so far, but praising God, you know, we, we've been saying that praise is just the, the completion of our enjoyment of something. And so when it says that they're praising God, we have to assume that that means they're telling others how much they're enjoying God. You know, they're talking about God. They're sharing about God. In other words, that's evangelism. They're not walking around with, you know, a booklet with the four spiritual laws. They're just telling people about the God that they love, and that's evangelism. But then the second thing here, it says that they're enjoying the favor of all the people, which essentially means people start to like them. They enjoy being around them. They're, they become likable people. And I actually think that rings true. 
Because when a person is growing spiritually, when the Holy Spirit is working in a person's life, we're told in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of what the Holy Spirit does in a Christian's life who is growing is that person becomes more loving, more joyful, more patient, more kind, more faithful, more gentle, more self-controlled. So if that's who you're becoming, then it just follows naturally that more and more people will like you. And they'll like being around you. And that's what's happening here. They're just enjoying the favor of all the people because they're becoming more like the Holy Spirit wants them to become. And then thirdly, it says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And it's here that we see the spreading. So everything I've talked about so far has just been the flourishing. How do we flourish? But now we see the spreading. As they have this outward focus and as others start to look in, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so the flourishing of the individuals within the church and the flourishing of the church itself through learning, loving, and liturgy, the result of that is the church spreads. And that's the way it was. And we liked it. Let's pray. Father, we, we long to be those who are flourishing. And we long to live in a world like John Lennon imagined. A brotherhood. Where there's just no selfishness. Where we can share. And Lord, we see that through the Holy Spirit and in your church, we can, we can live that. We can experience that. And so, Father, I pray that we would experience that Uh, in our church. We pray that churches all across our city would experience that. And we pray, Lord, that as, as we flourish, as Christians, as our churches flourish, that we would grow in favor with all the people and that you would add to the number daily in our city those who are being saved. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.